This episode is brought to you by Meow Wolf. Manifest unique family memories at Meow Wolf Denver. Quantum travel is the most comfortable way for Earthers of all ages to explore a playground of imagination. And why visit just once when this immersive experience reshapes every time you enter? C Street is my favorite because C Street has this vibe of like 80s dystopian. There's like slime coming down the walls and there's weird posters. And then of course, the secret club. With the annual Portal Pass, drop by Convergence Station as much as you want for less than the cost of two adult tickets. So if you plan to go twice, it's worth it. Plus, enjoy discounts, special offers, and so much more. Get the annual Portal Pass and spend quality space time with your favorite Earthers today. Learn more at MeowWolf.com. That's MeowWolf.com. Welcome to CityCast Denver. I'm Bree Davies, and you're listening to Mayoral Madness, our effort to get to know all 17 candidates who want to be Denver's next mayor. Today, I'm speaking with Professor James Walsh. Jim, welcome to the show. It's great to be here. So I, I know you recently embarked on a bike tour of every neighborhood in the city as sort of part of your campaign. Um, can you tell me about a new place or somewhere that's new to you that you came across on this tour? Yeah, the... Uh... The places where I hadn't really been or spent time were the very southern edges of the city and southeast. Um, the, the wealthier parts of Denver were new to me. So that was kind of fun to explore. And places I haven't been in years. And of course, all the shops and stores have changed. But it was a great tour. It was amazing to get around the city on a bicycle. I was blessed to have good weather and met with people and interviewed workers all along the way. So you were on your bike. I don't know if this is your normal mode of transit, but I wonder if you learned anything about transit in Denver from the seat of your bike. You, you learn a lot about not only transit, but the city in general from a bicycle seat. This is why I love cycling. There's something about being accessible in that way to the elements, and exposed to the elements and everything. I learned that while we have had a great increase in the mileage of bicycle lanes, there's still a great need for protected bicycle lanes. This is what's going to get people on their bikes who aren't currently on their bikes is feeling safe. I've, I met with some amazing cyclist organizations like Bike Streets, put together this amazing map where a grid of Denver, you can get around on quiet streets anywhere from point A to point B. And so I know that the interest is there. We just need the, we just need the commitment and the resources. So is that what is that what you would focus on? Like when we talk about transit, it's a huge part of of what our leadership does for the city. And I wonder, I mean, beyond protected bike lanes, what else would you like to do to improve our transit here in Denver? Yeah, so there needs to be lanes that aren't just for cyclists, but for all rolling methods, I guess. You could, I don't know if there's a good term for that, non-carbon uh, transportation. E-bikes, you know, the e-bike rebikes have helped a lot. I think uh, people who, who don't want to cycle on a traditional bike are, are, are often happy to get on an e-bike. And I believe the city has the resources to make uh, RTD free for the public. And that should, be, that should be an enormous part of it. Think about think how that would increase ridership. How would that increase ridership to you? Well, for me, it would mean, um, well, I mean, I, th I, I have an eco pass, so I often put my bike on the train when I'm going from one part of the city to the next. And so the train, the train lines represent a kind of spokes and a wheel that allow cyclists to get wherever they're, they're going. But I, I just think that for low income 
residents, free public transportation could make an enormous difference. And that's my campaign is really rooted in the slogan is Denver Workers First. It's about centering the wage earners in our society who who carry the city on their back but can't afford to live in it. Why do you care about workers here in Denver? Well, I'm from a working class family. I'm from a very large Irish Catholic family in a steel town near Pittsburgh. So I grew up watching my parents struggle, watching my, my dad fed nine miles on a 100% commission job, and there was always stress. So I grew up in a situation where I understood what struggle felt like. And I went off to Duke University on a wrestling scholarship, and I landed in a, this Disneyland of wealth and privilege where all the, the students seemed to come from private high schools. And I remember hearing the word brunch for the first time in my life when I went to Duke. <laughs> <laughs> I had never heard the word. Sure. It wasn't in, it wasn't in my vocabulary. So I, I developed class consciousness based upon going from those two experiences. And that never left me. So when I became an historian and, a, and, and an academic, I knew what I wanted to do. I wanted to center the lives and the stories of those who are typically left out of our history books. And that's what that's that's workers, people who do all the hardest work and and are often uh, marginalized and, and, and in Denver today, driven out of the city, really out of the city center. So my, my campaign is all about centering those voices. So I, I know you really as a historian, like you mentioned, it's really what you know really well. I wonder, why do you want to be mayor? That's a great question. Um, I think the city is in need right now of fresh voices. And I, I believe I'm, I, I'm one of those voices. I, I have got a 30-year teaching record in the city, tens of thousands of former students spread all over the metro area. I'm not a authoritarian type of leader. I'm a very collaborative. I believe in the power of the collective. And I believe I have the skills and the gifts necessary to bring people together. So they are talking to each other and with each other. And that's what the city desperately needs. The city is facing so many serious issues right now. And I believe I have the temperament and the, also the historical knowledge. I know the history of the city deeply. And that matters as well. That's a very important element that anyone in the mayor's office should should have command over the city's history. So you, you think history is really a good a good component of, of what we need to look at when we're looking at leading a city into the future? It's absolutely necessary. It's time for an historian to be in the mayor's seat. Because if you don't know where you've, you've come from, you have no way of knowing where to go. And this city has come far from a time when the city was controlled and run by the Ku Klux Klan to a city that's today quite progressive. And, but, but to know the next steps, that's the challenge, is, is um, building a city that's inclusive to all income levels. We do not have that city today. And, and until we do, we can't really call ourselves, a, in my view, a progressive city. So um, kind of related to this conversation about working people, because I think um, affordability obviously is a huge part of this conversation about what Denver looks like for the future. Um, so there's a bill in front of the Colorado General Assembly right now that would repeal the statewide ban on rent control. 
And supporters say increasing rents are the number one cause of homelessness, but opponents say rent control would stymie development and drive up housing costs. If that bill passes and you're elected mayor, would you implement rent control in Denver? I am a supporter. There's a long, proud history in the United States of tenants' rights organizations. It goes back to the Great Depression and even before then of people who, who are facing situations where they can't own property and they're, and they're forced to rent and coming together and organizing. And so I see this as, as a part of that tradition, as part of that trajectory. And I think anyone in the mayor's office needs to be a supporter of that because that's, that's a policy that's going to help uh, our low-income neighbors. So I wonder about homelessness then, because I know you've said that you'd stop the sweeps, but what would you do to tackle our homelessness crisis in particular? I think I have the most immediate and impactful idea for this of any of my colleagues. And it's a really simple idea. It's called universal basic income also known as guaranteed income. And this is not a pie in the sky. This is something that's been done different parts of the world and is currently being done in the United States, Stockton, California, and other places. Denver is doing an experimental version of this. And anyone listening to this, if you feel skeptical, I encourage you to go look at the data. The data is clear. When the people who are most in need are supplied with more resources, the civic health of, of a community improves drastically. And money is saved in healthcare costs, money is saved in incarceration costs, um, substance use goes down, um, well being of low income people rises tremendously, and people begin to imagine new lives and new, and new ways of existing. And so that's not just something that helps low income people. This is something that helps the entire city. And, and I'm, a, I'm a huge believer. This is an idea whose time is now. And, it, and think about you know, people who cannot find housing, people who are on the streets, people who are barely holding on to the place that they're renting currently, people who are making minimum wage, people who are forced to work two jobs to survive and may have children. If those families had we're not talking about supplying people with a penthouse apartment. We're talking about $500 a month, perhaps $1,000 a month. This is going to have an enormous impact. We saw glimpses of that impact when the child tax credit was expanded and then taken away. Something like 40% of children living in poverty, a decrease of 40%. And so we know that this, this can work. Historically, the poor have been judged and looked at as people who don't have the know-how to handle money, <laughs> but the data says otherwise. The data says that the people who best know how to handle more resources are the people who most need those resources. And so I will push this idea until the last days of this election because I think it's the only viable, immediate solution. Think about what that would do for housing in this city. Would you briefly explain universal basic income for someone who's maybe never come across this concept before? Yeah, it's very simple. It's um guaranteed monthly income. The parameters of who gets it, that, that all needs to be worked out and thought through very thoroughly. But it would go toward those at or near and below the poverty line, and those living on the streets. This, this would not be something that middle-class families would be receiving or, or those with great privilege. It would be, this would be simply for people who are struggling and suffering the most and need, and need that help. You know, low-income 
parents are not just resource poor, they're also very time poor. They, they, they work, I'm sure everyone listening knows someone who might work two or three jobs. That means their children suffer. That means another a whole generation is going without time with their parents. We can solve this. And this is not uh, something that's some enormous, unbelievable expense. So much of it we get back through social benefits that come with this. So we have to overcome a mentality to get there. We have to overcome the idea of a meritocracy, the idea that the poor are poor through their own fault. Once we can get past that myth, we can move forward. <laughs> and that's why that's why we need an academic in the White House. I'm sorry, I said the White House. <laughs> wow, you're going you're going big. In the mayor's office. Uh, I'm, I'm a little low on sleep. <laughs> that's okay. Well, but Jim, I have to ask though, where would that money come from? Well, it would come from our. I, I, this is a wealthy city, um, and we're, and remember too that we're not talking about some enormous sum of money. You know, um, five hundred dollars a month for families—that's not going to break the bank. I would I would have to look at the budget. I would have to look at how much this would cost, and I would have to look at where it would come from in terms of possible increase in in, in taxes particularly on the kinds of tax breaks that are given um, to, to corporate interests. I think that, that, um, that it has to come from the top. You know? and, and so we have a disparity of wealth problem in this country that we haven't seen since the Gilded Age. And we're talking about all housing, homelessness, crime. This is really what all of these issues boil down to, is the disparity of wealth. And this would, this would have a direct impact on that. So, you know, you're someone that studies labor history and labor is such a hot topic across the country. We're seeing labor organizing across industries. And you've talked a lot about making Denver the most worker friendly city in the country. I would love to know specifically, how would you do that? Well, UBI is one. A minimum wage that's closer to a living wage is another. If, if minimum wage, the value of minimum wage had kept pace with inflation, since the 60s, today it would be over $20 an hour. If minimum wage had kept pace with the rise of CEO salaries over the last generation, it would be in the 60s today. So what we know very clearly is that the value of minimum wage is, is a fraction of what it once was. And people can't survive on a minimum wage job. That's immoral. Martin Luther King said, um, in, in, in this rich nation, paying starvation wages is a crime. And, and so I think that it starts with UBI, a higher minimum wage, closer to a living wage, and it flows into supporting workers and their right to organize. We have a very low union density today. It's, it's gone down drastically since the 50s. The reason we have a low union density isn't because workers don't want to be organized. It's because of how hard it is to organize and how many tools corporations have at their disposal to keep workers from being organized. And so. I think there's some local policies we could enact, or certainly to ensure that all public employees have collective bargaining rights, not just county employees, which the last bill um, granted, but all public employees. And then, to, and then from there to, to work with uh, local corporations and, and look at how the mayor's office can be a conduit for um, supporting workers' right to organize. I think union density and wealth disparity have an inverse relationship. The higher union density, the lower wealth disparity. So this isn't just about workers' right to organize. It's about the health of our society as a whole. 
But those are just a few. From there, you know, there's, there's some real, there's a really great worker cooperative movement today in the United States, which has a local branch, worker owned cooperatives, workers own the company. In the San Luis Valley, there is a mushroom farm owned by the workers. So there are examples of this. Um, there's attempts to build apps that are driver drive sharing apps like Uber and Lyft, where the money doesn't go to Uber and Lyft, it, the, the workers own it themselves. So I, I would like to invest in, in that kind of thing. Um, housing cooperatives as well. The people who own the cooperative pay pay much less rent because they, they channel equity in that way so that they they don't have to pay nearly as much. So there are there's lots of great things happening, solutions and collectives. And I'd like to highlight those as mayor. So I'm going to ask you a question from one of our listeners. Um, Gina F. writes, quote, My neighborhood Safeway said they watch people walking out of their stores constantly with loads of groceries, and they're not allowed to stop them, and that's why the grocery prices are rising. I've heard the DAs are sending these criminals, quote, many repeat criminals, back to the streets. What would you do to curb crime, specifically car theft and theft in general? Well, we get asked this a lot. And absolutely, I, 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 I'm all about using law enforcement to pursue and, and uh, continue to curb. Of course, you know, my, I had a catalytic converter taken from my car a year ago. Um, so that needs to be addressed. And a lot of it are rings, you know, they're organized. So that, that absolutely needs to be addressed through, through our police department and, and channeling resources in the direction they need to go. I want to say, though, that I'm a little bit um, cautious when I hear about crime waves. Historically, every civil rights movement has been followed by a law and order backlash. And I believe we're living a lot. We're living that law and order backlash like we did in the Nixon era, um, like we did in the, in, the, in the McCarthy era. Um, and that backlash is the demonization of critical race theory, that, you know, the emphasis on, on crime waves. So I, I, I want to just emphasize that, that we have to look at this in, through an historical lens and be, be a little bit cautious about what it means, because we know this, when fear leads elections, it never ends well. And so just, just questioning that, that narrative a little bit is, is very important. And I, I think also one more point I'll say about that is law and order backlashes always lead to a remilitarization of police, and, and that hurts low-income communities. So we don't want to go back to a remilitarization of police. We want to we want to go to a place where police resources are used adequately and are used humanely and nonviolently. And so um, while I while with the, along with the the listener who wrote that these these this organized crime rings need to be dealt with um, firmly, <laughs> and, and I would as mayor. I, I just want to make sure we're looking at this through an historical lens. So you've really put great context around this conversation about the role of police in our cities and, and how it can be used or, you know, I mean, we're lo I, we're looking at the aftermath of protests is kind of what you're talking about this last couple of years, right? And I just wonder, there's still folks that say we still need to hire more police. Um, and then there's folks that say we need to abolish the police. So what would you where where do you land in that conversation? Like, what would you do to deal with the police department here in Denver? Well, I'm not about abolishing the police. I, I think we need police and um, police are important. You know, I have family members who were law enforcement back in Pennsylvania. It's really about reshaping the mission of police and what they do and who they are and how they intervene. And 
that when they're in low-income communities, they're not there to police, they're there, they're there to serve. And that's a mindset that comes through training, I think. So the STAR program's a great start. I, I know that that came out of street activists and street medics, and that needs to be expanded. I would expand that so that there's a big percentage of 911 calls that don't require someone with a gun. They just require help and assistance. So that's a big one. I think training police in nonviolent, non-lethal de-escalation tactics matters. Yeah, I mean, I, I know there's I know there's situations that are just violent because they are, and police have to intervene with a heavy hand. But I also know that there's a lot that are not. And police, a very just the very presence of police causes an escalation. So police training is a big part of that. I think police officers need need to be need access to mental health services in a way that they're destigmatized. A lot of officers have a kind of machismo socialization where seeking mental health treatment is is weakness or something like that. So so getting officers beyond that, knowing that it's a very stressful work, and supporting officers in any way that they need that. So that, that, that's my vision for law enforcement is to focus on you know the instead of force all being first force should always be last so i'm going to ask you a couple of questions from this sort of list of questions that we give to every candidate we pick a, a couple of random ones um so we've had the same mayor michael hancock for 12 years and while many people are ready for change many others reelected him multiple times um what is something that mayor hancock got really right and what's something that mayor hancock got really wrong i think he was pretty good with covid um, I think his response to the refugees that were being that were bussed into the city was very humane. He was on the right side of that. I do think the mayor has has done an, a decent job on many issues. But as far as as far as getting wrong, I think the the way that the city has become such so so divided economically, and so many have been driven out of their communities. The mayor did not meet that moment. The mayor, but whether he was blind to that or wasn't um, prioritizing that. I don't know. I want to give him the benefit of the doubt, but but certainly did not meet that moment. And that's the number one. That's the, there are two Denvers today, and that division didn't didn't just happen with this current mayor, but it certainly did increase with this current mayor. Casa Bonita, great restaurant, greatest restaurant. Do you have a hot take on Casa Bonita? <laughs> I love Casa Bonita. I'm a I'm a North Sider. So I've been I've been I've been going there for years and looking forward to going back when it, when it might have some good food. <laughs> <laughs> I will say too from I'm I'm thinking from your perspective, it's one of the largest employers of youth in Lakewood. So, you know, from a labor component could be a, absolutely could be a stronghold for for Jim Walsh supporters. <laughs> that's true. That's true. I should be over there with signs. You know? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Maybe some cliff divers. Or something. Yeah, maybe there's a Cliff Divers union in the works. You never know. You never there's know. not, there, sh there should be. <laughs> <laughs> um, so my last question is really part of the reason we're inviting all of the candidates for interviews is because we really want to hear what your fresh vision for the future of Denver is. As a person that looks at the past regularly, what is your vision for the future of Denver? You know, the, the potential of this city is endless. Um, one of the things I love about this city is the people you meet are from everywhere. But that's also the challenge of the city is there's a transience about Denver that you don't meet a lot of people with very deep roots. 
in Denver, at, at least at least maybe not the majority of people. So I think that 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 transience comes with great challenges. But I, you know, the, the Denver I envision is a Denver where just about every neighborhood has has great economic diversity, and that includes um, a welcoming attitude toward those who are unhoused or unhoused neighbors, instead of a, a kind of a ship them out of here attitude. So I, I imagine every every neighborhood in the city having economic diversity. I, have, I imagine every neighborhood in the city contributing to the ch- the balance of of greater greater density that a growing city naturally will have, but spreading out that responsibility to every neighborhood, that every neighborhood is contributing to that. Yeah, and I I, I see uh, I see a city that remains and continues to be incredibly diverse, not only not only culturally, but internationally, and a neighborhood, a, a city that is a sort of the capital of the entire Rocky Mountain region with, with very strong universities. <laughs> <laughs> so, Jim, where can folks go to learn more about you and your campaign? Uh, JimWalshFromMayor.com will give you at least the main policy ideas. But please reach out to me, James, James.Walsh at Comcast.net. I'll give you my personal number. Feel free to text me, 303 303- 709-5110, Denver Workers First, not second or third. Jim Walsh, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Mayoral Madness. What we hope is a 17-part interview series with all the candidates on the ballot to be Denver's next mayor. We're planning to publish these interviews each week leading up to Election Day on April 4th, and we'll be providing more news and analysis during the week. Subscribe to CityCast Denver and learn more about Mayoral Madness at denver.citycast.fm. We'll be back soon with even more mayoral candidates who want to lead the city.